11FS, I'm David Breer and this is Fintech Insider News. Today we bring you Revolut's Valentine's Day ad fail, the banking backlash down under, and a man quits his job at a bank and turns up like Spider-Man. Wonderful. We'll listen much, much more on today's show. Welcome to episode 295 of Fintech Insider. We're coming to you live from the 11FS offices in Devonshire Square in London. My name is David Breer, and I'll be your host for today. I'm joined, as always, by one of my co-hosts. So how's it going, Simon Taylor? I'm not too bad. Am I not your colleague anymore? No, nope, no longer. <laughs> Did you not get that email? I did not get the email that I'm not the colleague and co-host. It's uh, David Breer's reading skills once again. I'm really well, thank you. A little bit tired, but we've been doing lots of work, having lots of fun. I'm excited for this week's show though oh my goodness what a cracker this should be it's going to be a fun one we might be going long here guys so strap i hope you've got like a particularly long commute ahead of you today to listen to this one but uh, if not you might want to hit pause at some point all right as always we're not alone so we are joined by some wonderful guests and today we have quite a few of them so first up we have mel palmer who is the cmo of exo investing how's it going really well thank you thanks for having me on the show Fantastic. And next up, we have Samuel Pachigar. Yep, that's right. Yeah. Oh, is that close enough or did I... Yeah, that'll do. That yeah. was good? All right. Wonderful. And you're the head of partnerships at Acasa. I am indeed, yeah. Thanks for coming in. Yeah, thank you for having me. And, and next up, we have Victor. And you're going to have to say your second name? Nebehoy. Nebehoy. See, I, I got it in practice, didn't I? And then just really yeah. chickened down. It was in your brain. I did. just jumped I, out. Did you, you saw the panic in my eyes, right? And yeah. you're the CMO over at Free Trade. Correct. And last up, we have Iona Bain, who is the author of the Young Money blog. How's it going? Good. I'm very busy, but good. Yeah, <laughs> you've been up to stuff this week, but I think we probably, if we get into the news, we'll get to that pretty quickly. Okay. If you guys haven't uh, probably had enough of us after listening to the podcast and want to see the horrors of our faces, then we have uh, brought back Fintech Insider on air. So every Wednesday from 3pm, we'll be going live on Periscope, chatting about all of the latest things that we've been up to and where we are. Bizarrely, um, if you caught the last one, it was me and Leader in uh, Edinburgh Airport talking about the banking battlefield, which was rather, rather entertaining. Which so, explaining a diagram via video without the diagram. I thought you guys did really well, all things considered. The, hard to do. The, the free booze in the BA lounge really helped our creativity. I'm not going to lie. But, uh, British Airways. It was. Yeah. The, anyway, we'll get into that later. <laughs> All right. Well, let's get on to the news. And probably starting with, I imagine, not only the most interesting story this week, but one that really seems to have caught everybody's attention and imagination is Revolut's ads that caused a bit of a revolt. So over on BBC News slash literally everywhere that I move around on the internet right now is a backlash over single shaming banking ad. Now, if only we had somebody on the show who actually was really heavily involved in this one, <laughs> who maybe could take the cue from this one and sort of run with it. Yeah, a little explain bit. what's going on here. So I saw these ads on the tube and like many people thought that they were absolutely dreadful on so many levels. And so I thought, I'll tweet because I've been writing about money for um, eight years now and I like to study how brands and companies convey their values to customers. It's 
very important as a journalist that you take a judgment about that, I think, when you're working in this space. So I thought, this is my territory. I feel like I, I'm qualified to, to go on a bit of a Twitter rant. So I did, posted it, thought nothing of it. And then ever since then, it's like, I can't remember what my life was like before I did this Twitter thread. It has gone really crazy. I've had so many people get in touch with me who don't really have much to do with banking or marketing or fintech. Um, normal people who are really, really worried and confused about what this advert was telling them, um, as well as feeling like it was just in really, really poor taste. So it's been a bit of a mad week. What's really bizarre to me is like you were going to be coming on the show before this happened. Yes. And now it is sort of escalated and escalated and escalated. So it's fantastic time for having you on the new I show to talk we about did it. Not want. I know. No. Yeah. <laughs> it's like somehow we can like create crazy panic on online type thing. Mm. But yeah, so your your phone is melting yes. and we're, you know, we're at this point now where I think you've been called into various different places to go and talk about this as well, right? Yes, because the story has taken on a life of its own. Mm. So it's moved beyond me calling this out on Twitter and there being a really um, strong response to that initial tweet uh, thread. It has gone beyond that to raising lots of questions about how Revolut has handled this whole saga um, and particularly whether their marketing and communications strategy has been effective and whether it has actually prolonged the controversy and painted Revolut in quite a bad light. So now there's lots of questions about whether or not they could have handled me better, whether they should have issued a much clearer apology to its customers, um, whether they should have made it clear that these ads were a spoof in the first place, because that wasn't at all clear. Mm. I think it's probably worth, um, if you haven't seen the ads, mm. you could probably Google them. Uh, if you're listening along, though, and you haven't seen the ad, um, the ad re copy reads something along these lines. It says, um, so you imagine you're standing waiting for the tube and you see an advertisement with a Revolut card that says, to the 12,750 people who ordered a single takeaway on Valentine's Day, you okay, hon? And it complaints include insensitivity and single shaming. Um, and I guess the thing that... Uh, also got pointed out here is it's an actual ripoff of some Spotify ads that mm. were from 2018. So Spotify, now listen to the Spotify ad. Um, to the 3,749 people who streamed It's the End of the World as We Know It um, on the day of the Brexit vote, hang in there. Mm. The the concept is the same, but the tone is yet somehow so powerfully different. Um, and it, it's a direct copy. Isn't that interesting, though, that, you know, we always know that it's not what you're saying it's how you say it yes. right and actually i do wonder i do worry about revolut quite a lot because they've been so successful in doing so many things they're moving so fast they're you know they're delivering amazing things and now they're out to singapore and the us and like developing all of these things but there's like those sort of cultural sensitivities that if you're not getting in your home market very effectively mm -hmm. and you've not got the filtration within your internal uh, organization to stop these things happening before they get to market that you're going to really piss people off in Singapore and China and all sorts of places. I, I do think, though, like my, my concern slightly is um, context, because there are things that Revolut do say that I do say myself. Uh, so, you know, they're, they're famed for saying get shit done. And I will say, you know, mm. like I'm, I, I live by the whole get shit done. Mm. But it's not the, the purpose, the, the, the context of doing it in an organization to 
talking about it as from an ind- uh, industry perspective can be perceived and can be taken in completely different ways. Yeah. So I, I, it's, it is an amazing, like language is a funny thing, right? Intent is such an important thing. It really and is. I think you can see a lot from the apology that doesn't sound sincere, which is we're sad to hear that a small number of people were offended by our tube ad. That's why we'll be hosting drinks events on Valentine's Day for anybody who doesn't yet have plans. P.S. Vegan sausage rolls will be served. Mm. So again, it's that community communicates to me one not taking it seriously two actually you're talking down to the people who were offended by it and you're saying there's a small number of them it's yeah. the non-apology that's, yeah. that's the shit i say to my wife when we've argued and i want it to be over but i'm not apologizing <laughs> it's like yeah. i'm sorry you're offended yes. is not i'm sorry i've offended you that's yeah. me saying like i'm sorry you've overreacted yes. which is just ridiculous isn't well, it? it's very strange because um what's happened is that within my original um Twitter uh, critique, I talked about this aspect of single shaming, which obviously got picked up by a lot of the mainstream press because it's a very headline grabbing notion. And I completely stand by that. I believe that that advert was inviting people to pity and mock those who were single on Valentine's Day, which is such a, a backwards, regressive message for a fintech company to be sending out. It was so bizarre. But besides that, what I was also pointing out was that this was misrepresenting what the f- company was doing with its consumers' data. And Revolut has completely refused to acknowledge that point at all. A crucial issue. Absolutely. That's the that's the issue at stake here because that gets to the heart of what they do. And for the general public who don't know that much about how banks work, and especially now that we're, you know, trying to raise awareness of what open banking is and engender trust in open banking, I feel like this really sets back the cause massively. It damages trust in brands. It makes people think that their banks are snooping on them and using their data against them to make crude judgments. And now Revolut have made it so much worse by just not holding their hands up and going, yeah, we got this wrong. We shouldn't have adopted this tone. We should have made it clearer that the information was made up. And and we accept that, that, you know, we made a mistake. Instead, they've doubled down and gone for this non-apology. And now it's transpiring that there is a lot of discontent within Revolut about the outward strategy that they've adopted, judging by some of the emails that I've been getting, um, you know, there is a lot of dissatisfaction brewing around how Revolut's handled this whole saga. And do you want to just fill fill people in Mm. who haven't caught up quite on that? Meeting one of them because I've been in meetings literally all day today. Absolutely. Uh, But I got 40 seconds before this going, this is getting worse. So, and I've just jumped on your Twitter, but what's happened to get people up to speed? So, um, I received an anonymous encrypted email through my website. Uh, The password was uh, the marketing genius behind this uh, strategy that they've adopted this last week. Um, So I had to enter that and then I was able to access what appears to be an internal Slack showing how employees reacted to the story um, and featuring some really tone-deaf comments, which now I'm told this email must have come from somebody who saw this, was pretty appalled and thought I ought to know about it. That is pretty terrifying. It feels like this one's going to run and run and run, doesn't it, in terms yeah. of the, the impact? And, and I think, like you say, it, it does, not just in terms of uh, Revolut, but actually just for companies more broadly, that tone deafness and how you position not only, like we said, what uh, 
what you're saying, but the way in which you say it is going to be really, really important. And it, and it's, the, it's a sign of maybe the times, you know, we've got fintech companies who maybe aren't as robust or sophisticated or got the experience that big organizations do. And sometimes that lack of, you know, sort of judgment and the cavalier nature of this, we should have sort of expected this in some instances. I think in some, in you know, we've seen maybe Revolut, particularly on Twitter, emulating some of the things that people like Wendy's have done in the, the US where they've right. been more provocative. They're trying to be funny, mm. but it's really easy to come off like a dick. Absolutely. And I would say that the way they treated me, they they really um, maligned me as a snowflake a blogger who whose opinion didn't count for anything. Well, that's not true. I've been writing the Young Money blog for eight years. I've written a book. I speak at events. Lots of people in the industry know who I am. It was a, a big mistake for them to paint me um, in as that particular, um, you know, snowflake model. But then also, I think that with what's going to transpire with the FCA now looking into Revolut and whether or not they misrepresented the service that they provided, they're going to have to provide a proper apology about why they put out this advert that was misleading. Um, And I think with that will come an acknowledgement that you can't just hide behind this fig leaf of snowflake triggering and snowflake bashing whenever somebody calls out an advert for being misleading and false and in bad taste yeah it's funny i I thought when when we sort of got oh it's not funny i mean it's Mm. funny i expected the thing that we'd have a trouble with from a fintech perspective would have been on a a regulatory thing or a Mm. risk miscalculation but just fucking up on marketing seems like the thing that they shouldn't have done in the first place right from a company who uh, a year ago was saying they don't pay for marketing <laughs> maybe they should. Maybe they should. <laughs> maybe they should. Well, uh, any thoughts from the panel here? I think we've also got really used to, um, especially with Monzo, where every time something kind of happens and the press kind of picks it up, they're the first people to come out and say, Do you know what? We hold our hands up. We got this a bit wrong. Here's the reasons why we did everything. Mm. And I think as an industry, we got to this kind of expectation that, yeah, people might get it wrong sometimes, but they'll own up to it and then they'll make it right. And I think that's what's been really surprising in this situation is I think as fellow fintechers we do hold ourselves to very high standards Mm. the reason fintech exists is to put customers first because that wasn't happening before so that's where the kind of it kind of messed up for me where i'm like oh i know you've done a good thing because i know you've built a good product that has helped lots and lots of people and you've done an amazing thing and it's so you know what they did is they got it wrong um and people do get stuff wrong people make mistakes but then to not kind of deal with that in the way that we would expect and how other people in the industry would expect is really difficult to kind of handle it? And it, yeah it is it is interesting on that point because i know i know you guys are free trade and i know like through the conversation that we've had with like monzo and various different players they're placing as much emphasis on creating the internal culture and putting in place the processes to create true transparency that things like that in terms of the slack channel that's been sent to you would have been common knowledge across the entirety of the company yeah. so actually it's it's um you know maybe there's less uh time being spent in revolut worrying about how they are as a business and too much time spent on the only thing is the stuff that we're delivering to customers which mm. you know th- is the difference between um you know, building a, a a nice building or, you know, a thousand slaves dying for your pyramid type thing. You know, mm. I kind of think there's got to be a nice sort of balance in terms of what you're doing. Mm. I personally don't think as well that all publicity is good publicity in this case, because the target market that I think Revolut are aiming for 
I'm not going to be impressed by any of this. And the only people who seem to have found this all very amusing are not the kind of people that I think Revolut want as customers. Well, let's see how this one transpires. But like you say, I think this is going to have a a pretty long shelf life and run run and run and run. So let's see what happens next. But no doubt we'll bring it back to you next week. Uh, Can I add a comment maybe? Sure. Um, Yeah, so... I, I like marketing because you can steal a lot of ideas. I, I, I do steal a lot of, lot of ideas. I'm sure you may uh, you are take, in marketing take as well. Yeah, draw inspiration, right? There's a couple of Picasso that say good artists copy, great artists steal. <laughs> yeah, exactly. R&D, and right. that's, that's what we absolutely do in marketing. And that, that's what, that's what Revolut did as well, right? Like it, the whole campaign is an ex, in, like an exact replica of, of the Spotify campaign, uh, which, which was, if, if I remember correctly, it was called, uh, uh, 2018, it was weird. I, I think that yeah. was like the can, kind of the campaign. And it was a quirky company giving some quirky data, but kind of like in a, in a kind way. And yeah. that, that was the reflection of their internal culture. And when a marketing campaign goes wrong like this, that, that's a reflection of your inter, internal culture. Yeah. That, that's what I think about it. You, you know, not to, um, you know, advertise my own company so much, but uh, w- one thing I'm really proud of, you walk into the free trade office, the, the first thing you see as a sign, treat customers fairly. That's not something we made up. That, that's a principle by the FCA. That that's something we, we hold very, very, in very, very high regard. And everything kind of stems from that, like how we treat customer data, how we talk about customers internally. Uh, when, when we do user testing, when we discuss the results in our internal Slack, everyone's really respectful. No one's like, oh, yeah, this dumb user or something like that. It's all about your internal culture. That's what I think. And uh, maybe another thought related to that, that, uh, you know, it's, it's been a while since I studied marketing and advertising. But um, I, I think one definition of advertising is to, uh, to inform, persuade and and uh, remind uh, consumers of your of your brand or product, right? And and in a way, this this campaign was actually successful. We are talking about it. There was a BBC article. You know, it, it became a thing. Uh, the signups may not be too bad as a result. You know, th- there there is a certain level of cultural struggle. They don't maybe speak to everyone, but there is a segment of the population they do speak to. Um, so, you know, may- maybe this marketing campaign wasn't that bad. It might be a controversial idea, but... I think uh, trying to get uh, scale with such diversive tactics, I think are going to be really difficult. Um, but again, I guess we're we're not going to know until we know on this one. True, so. I, I agree, David. I, I, you know, I, I think like comprehensively, right? Like as a financial company, you want to create trust and all that, but maybe for certain segments that they want to attract maybe for them this this kind of campaign wasn't the worst idea i don't know completely we we have a policy internally at 11fs which is pretty straightforward it's don't be a dick um and we sort of try and take that into marketing and actions and everything because it covers everything really all basis but uh, anyway moving on so next story we have is one over on cnbc so this is a pretty big one here so this is two of the us's biggest banks merge to become a super bank which sounds pretty sexy i'm not gonna lie Super bank. Um, I want to bank with the super bank. Exactly, yeah. There's a whole marketing scheme around that one. That's going to be quite good fun. So this is BB&T at, to buy SunTrust banks for $28 billion in stock. God damn, that's a lot of money. So the companies called it a merger of equals valued at $66 billion. Damn. Uh, the combined company, it will be the sixth largest U.S. bank based on assets and deposits. And the deal is expected to close out in the fourth quarter of 2019. That is 
pretty damn impressive. Like, it kind of feels like a good thing if you're a big bank who can already deal with, uh, you know, pan-US regulation, dealing with that regulation to cozy up for scale. Yeah. But what do you guys think? Oh, I just think, you know, and especially in the fintech industry at the moment. So we are launching our B2B proposition. And obviously that involves kind of integration. I'm sure you guys do a lot of this as well. I'm looking at that and going, oh my God, how do you put two massive behemoths together and make it successful and at the same time be servicing your customers in the way that they expect? Like that is a monumental task. And this is what I was going to say. You don't, right? Typically, what you see is that there's a brand uh, sort of lick of paint over the top of it, and then eventually it's actually the same systems underneath. Um, there are banks uh, that you know were in the UK that have merged and demerged, famously um, Lloyd's and TSB, that still had some heritage TSB system and heritage Lloyd's and heritage Halifax systems. And they'd done a lot of integration stuff over the years, but actually all of those original systems were in duplicate and were still there. And you see that a lot. And it's not just that example. There are Many other examples like that uh, where people have been acquired, you know, Santander and, uh, have been probably an exception in the Spanish banks. But this strikes me as that's a really hard thing to do. But then consider where the US market is, right? The US market, um, increasingly, you know, the top four or five banks have been taking market share and gaining market share. If you're in that mid-range, if you can't beat them, join them. I guess, yeah. I think I think it is going to be amazing to see how they do do that integration because, like, like you say, it's it's it, you know we talk about sedimentary rock. You know, you <laughs> you end up finding like bits of this and bits of that. But you know, big banks, both of those big banks have been their heritage is through M and A anyway. Yeah. So they are fair. already a facet of you know large scale acquisitions to create credit card systems or whatever. So you know, I don't think they're going to be any stranger to that. But it's going to be you know your your example around Santander is always interesting because. Santander were one of the few few companies that I've come across who have been so Borg-esque about (laughs) it. They like assimilate other banks into their systems really effectively, just with like a straight up kind of, you know, it's not your system, it's ours and get on it or die, Um, which is pretty good. Something about the Spanish, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I think that uh, it goes down to um, with kind of mergers, how big the parties are when, when you've got two parties that are equal. It just makes it a lot more difficult. You've got two very separate cultures. Yeah. Uh, you need to try and combine those cultures. How do you combine the operations? Where's like uh, the financial saving and all of this? So um, I think the Santander one's really interesting. Uh, they like gobbled up a lot of the smaller banks. Um, I think this is going to be really difficult. I think that extracting the value from it, things that look great on a spreadsheet um, or the M&A investor deck don't always translate to real savings. Um, but you know, in terms of assets and deposits, you can still make it make sense um, on a combined balance sheet. So you know, banking's a little bit different with those. But you know, and, and also uh, the customer value in this, like are the customers benefiting from it? Um, and what about the competitors? It was our own Sam Moll, our North American partner, said, you know, if you're PNC or TD or Regions or Citi citizens like what who what are they going to do about this like this news has come out of nowhere it wasn't expected it wasn't anticipated you know what's it going to mean for those mid-sized u.s market players yeah i feel from a consumer perspective that it's always a bit worrying when you see two huge banks come together in that way and it does rather go against what we've been seeing in in the uk with um you know a much more diverse banking ecosystem it it does seem that this is another way in which perhaps the american and the british systems are diverging from each other and and personally I, I i feel from a consumer perspective that i would prefer the british system as we have it even though it's imperfect as opposed to that 
you know, huge banking superpower culture that, that this is feeding into, perhaps. You are seeing, though, in the U.S. market, you're getting those competitors now. You know, Chimo are the fastest growing bank in the U.S. They're, they're acquiring customers faster than City or Wells. Uh, you've got the likes of Robinhood and Acorns putting real pressure in uh, from other parts of the market. Um, so I think you know, the U.S. is massive. And, and you've also, of course, got all the regional banks, uh, which still make up a good chunk of the market. So how are they going to react to this? Uh, what are, what's their defensive or offensive strategy going to be, given the customer acquisition has been moving up to the top? How how do, how do they stay relevant, especially if they've been you know, uh, stuck to one, two, three state um, areas? How, how are they going to grow and what does their future look like uh, in the wake of this? Hmm. It's going to be super interesting to see what happens, whether this is just another, uh, is this uh, compliance and regulatory arbitrage for these guys and they can create all of this opportunity by having one 20,000 person organization doing it rather than 40,000 people doing well, it. Or- and are you going to, uh, if you've got the duplicate systems and you, even if you put the lipstick over the top of those duplicate systems, what do you do about that sedimentary rock? Do you just let it sit there or is there another approach to dealing with that? Because if you end up with lots of different silos, your duplication of cost eventually becomes aggregate inefficiency. It does. The US, they make them big, right? Mm-hmm. All right, moving on. Speaking to another American company. So we have a story up next on TechCrunch, which is Amex and Curve split up. It says bust up, but split split up near Valentine's Day seems a little more appropriate. (laughs) So uh, this is uh, American Express blocks Curve as the fintech startup vows to fight anti-competition. So this is 36 hours after Curve was reinstated on American Express. They then blocked that feature and cardholders could no longer use their Curve card to pay with American Express. Now, like I started using Curve because I could actually then start paying with American Express anywhere. And that was like three years ago. And the minute it stopped, I stopped using it. Yeah. Um, and you can, you definitely saw like everybody getting really excited about this online. It, it kind of, it's back and now I can start. So it sort of sucks that 36 hours later that they actually had got something sort of crossed here. But what what went wrong, do you think? I mean, it's, I find it really difficult to understand, I guess, Amex's position on this because so much of their business model is based on the merchant uh, agreements that they have in place so kind of putting curve in the way of that they're kind of losing data they're also u- losing the direct relationship so I just wasn't really sure why. what Amex has to gain from it but at the same time yes curve I was exactly the same as you I was like yes great now I can use my Amex everywhere I can get loads more rewards exactly but then how did the economics stack up for Amex on that well because that was always the problem you know Amex is a great in terms of all of those rewards that you will get but if you can't spend it in most of the places that you want to use then what's the point in having the Amex in the first place and, and it only works in certain merchants this curve on the face of it was just a great product wasn't it this ability to like I'm going to spend on any other card but then i'm just going to move it to the amex and i'm going to get the points anyway like if i'm amex i can see why you'd be like so wait i'm cut out as you say cut out from the customer cut out from the data um my brand's being diluted i can see why they wouldn't like this so it was always a bit of an arbitrage play from curve but they seem to exploit several loopholes and do it um this one uh, it's hard to see what the what the right way forward for whom is well and a a major point for american express is always bringing that card out right you know like a major part of their branding is that you know, gold card or the platinum card or the 
black one that I've never seen before because I'm not wealthy enough. <laughs> and I saw it pick out someone's wallet once. Did like, you? Oh, wow. Oh Did you get their autograph? It's that thing, isn't it? It's that yeah, status thing about so. Amex. It is. Which, if you're using the curve card but getting Amex, then it cheapens their relationship. It does. And, it, and so I, I can totally see this from American Express's side. But I guess what has happened in the breakdown of relationship between those yeah. two companies where Curve thought that this was all good to go and did, and then they pulled the plug, you know, less than, you know, three days later. What, it just seems like a massive corporate misjudgment then on their part that they couldn't have foreseen that that relationship wasn't going to work out. <laughs> so uh, there's, a, there's actually a post on the Curve community. I think uh, one of their team members describes in detail how the process went down. And it, it sounds like, I mean, everyone sh- should uh, read it for themselves, but to me it sounded like that MX was never really in it, like fully, that they want their to go ahead. And, right. and, and Curve was going ahead regardless but they never really got the, the, the buy-in from MX. And I, I do see it from MX's perspective. It's, it's intermediation, right? I mean, you know, one thing I learned as, you know, kind of being an entrepreneur, you want to own everything or at least everything core to your business, right? And when somebody tries to intermediate that, that's, that, that's, that's terrible. It, it better, better be a good deal, but usually it's not a good idea. Um, and yeah, from Kerr's perspective, I, I really feel for the CEO because, uh, I mean, it's a question of product market fit from, from my perspective. And, and th- that was the attack vector, right? Like, um, you know, MX is, is you know, if, if you can't spend with MX at most places, you still can't and you can collect the rewards. That That's like the attack vector, right? And that would have been fantastic. But uh, yeah, it's it's not so easy. So um, I don't know. I, I signed up for Curve. I'm not using it. I never gotten through the sign up process. I kind of got bored halfway, to, yeah. to be honest. But But some of my friends do use it. They love it. Uh, they, they were looking forward to the MX uh, yeah, integration. Point love this thing. Me, love <laughs> me some points for sure. <laughs> all right. Next up, we have a story that makes Sarah Kachansky all warm inside. Indeed. From lawsuits to criminal charges, and this time down under. So this is a story over in The Guardian. So banks may face criminal charges after the final Royal Commission report is released. So this is over in Australia. The Australian banks have been investigated and the report published proves a damning indictment, which is always quite a terrifying way of putting this, um, including fee for no service scandal, which sounds like a pretty shitty relationship, doesn't it? Mm -hmm. You're essentially being charged for something you're not even being given. Um, How many of you guys have actually sort of looked into this one? Because I I use Google Alerts for news every morning, and literally it's been the only thing Google have been spending (laughs) me all week. It's been such a big sort of Ferrari down down under, as it were. Indeed. What what do you guys think? Yeah, I mean, um, just hearing the news drop and seeing like uh, the regulations are not going far enough. Um, it feels more like a slap on the wrist for these banks. Um, and what we'll probably end up seeing is uh, some immediate change. You'll see a lot of people losing their jobs, a, a bit of a top down on stop doing this. Uh, a lot of the PR machine really spinning. Uh, it might last for two or three years, but you'll find that the banking culture will just start kicking in and, um, we'll have uh, the next big scandal probably in the next two or three years. So, so on that side of things, it, it stated within the article that 
AMP, ANZ, CBA, NAB. Like Australians do love acronyms for banks. Yeah. Right? <laughs> uh, and Three Westpac. Less. So well done, Westpac, for being like a full word. Uh, already <laughs> expected to pay $850 million in remediation for this one. So this is going to, if this is like the opening silo for uh, kind of uh, actually sort of taking some money, this is going to get pretty terrible, isn't it? Well, yeah, but like we've seen big fines before and we've seen behaviors not change. Like if I'm not having the the behavior change coming from fining, why would I keep fining? It's like, it's, ju- it's just ineffective. And, and uh, speaking of Sarah Kachansky, she's been talking for a long time about let's get the CEOs and put them in stocks and throw fruit at them. We need some <laughs> ritual humiliation. Like how else? Yeah. Do you stop this stuff? Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's it, you know like some of the practices about the fee for no service and unlawful billing of the dead. Um, you, I'm not surprised. The um, unlawful billing of the dead—that sounds like some sort of horror movie, doesn't <laughs> it? Well, like something from the 16th century. Life. I yeah. can't believe they actually went yeah. through with things like that. Mm. And then you must, you know, you think about the culture that exists in old kind of traditional finance. And again, you know, this is where fintech came from in the first place. Yeah. It shouldn't require a regulator for people to behave in a way that's right for the customers. You shouldn't need the slap on the wrist. You shouldn't need the fines. You should be putting them first. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think you know it's a massive opportunity. For for fintechs to take charge in Australia with something like this coming uh, out. And, and you can say that the markets do look similar and Sarah points this out quite often, but you've got concentrated banking market and the big four at the top, but also you're seeing Zinger and H6400 and others. Now you're getting the challenger banks. Um, there's there's a lot of similarities there. Um, hopefully those challenger banks can start putting some pressure on um, because it, what we've seen in the UK at least is the, the high street banks here have started offering some of the features that you would see in your challenger banking app day to day. So it, that's good for consumers if nothing else mm, I, like I, I i wonder i wonder what will happen next in this though yeah because like the weird thing is is like so you want to see the unlawful killing of the dead no wait with the unlawful <laughs> killing of the dead so that's it i don't want anybody <laughs> yeah how do you kill the dead i don't okay, know anyway. Uh, no, that's vampires, isn't it? I was going to say yeah. stake, stake through the heart. But uh, anyway, um, <laughs> so the, and, uh, the, the issue on this is this is fucking people. Yeah. This is people doing this to other people. Some people dead who are going through, you know, their families going through terrible circumstances. Like, it just freaks me out because you, you can talk about incentives in big organizations. And it isn't just banks who are kind of suffering this this problem where people turn out to be dicks. Like, there's a theme of this show. This show is called People Are Dicks. <laughs> the um, dick hour. But being, being in that's definitely something else. <laughs> you got to be careful in some other geography. Okay? Um, but, like, the, the narrative that these are human beings who are making these decisions about how to treat other human beings is just terrifying to me, really. But Kachansky did get win that we're talking about Australia, and she can't be left out of this one. So let's hear from Sarah and see what she thought. The Royal Commission that we're talking about was established in 2017 um, after years of requests from loads of people, MPs, whistleblowers, lobbyists, to uh, investigate whether the four major banks had taken advantage of that situation um, and had engaged in misconduct and if criminal or other legal proceedings should be referred to the Commonwealth. I should point out it wasn't just the four major banks who were being investigated, a number of other financial institutions were also involved. Um, so the commission was basically asked to consider if some efficient mechanisms were also in place to compensate victims um, who had been affected by that misconduct. 
So over the past few years, we've heard stories of ridiculous behaviour by Australia's major banks um, and financial companies. Those include bribery, forged documents, failure to verify customers' living expenses before lending them money, um, mis-selling insurance to people who can't afford it. A couple of particularly standout cases, AMP admitted that they'd lied to regulators, and the Commonwealth Bank admitted some of its financial planners um, had been charging fees to clients who were actually dead. So pretty outrageous stuff. Um, what's been announced this week is the Commission's recommendations are off the back of hearing all the evidence. Uh, briefly, there are 76 recommendations in total. The aim is to um, make changes in the financial sector. So they include giving regulators more powers, compensating victims, um, making changes to the way banking employees are remunerated. They also say they want to end the unlawful and excessive charging of fees. Um, there is no, uh, as far as I can tell, um, definition of what excessive is. So that would be an interesting one. Um, and more broadly, they want to encourage cultural reform and better protect vulnerable and disadvantaged customers. My opinion is that only when customers change their behaviour will the banks really suffer when they start leaving those banks and using other providers. Um, however, there are not that many of those other providers in Australia yet that they are coming, thanks to the new licensing scheme. And big banks have a head start when it comes to digitalization uh, and providing the services today's customers want, because in Australia, they've been really able to focus on developing that, developing their own technology and new products and services, because they just haven't had to deal with competition, or in fact, it sounds like been under the same scrutiny by regulators as uh, their peers in the rest of the world. So I suspect a few customers will be disgusted enough with the findings to move provider, but otherwise it will only be when, and, and I think it's a big if as well, actually, the recommendations cause the banks to focus on making good, um, as opposed to keeping up with the startups, um, that we will see real change in customer behaviour because they will fall behind and the customers will have more of a reason to shift provider. Oh man, I hate it when Sarah says what we said, just way smarter, don't you? <laughs> she, does, <laughs> she does that. does it every time. All right, let's move on. So next up, we have a story which is Metro's having a bit of a bad week. So this is a story over on the Telegraph. Metro Bank has been hit by a cyber attack used to empty customers' accounts. So Metro Bank has become the first major bank to be named as the victim of a new type of cyber attack targeting those codes that are sent to you via SMS. Whew, that was a long sentence. Um, the customers are using those things to verify transactions or set up new payees, and people are being able to intercept those uh, as a sort of full that additional layer of security by the wayside, really. So this is kind of scary because this is something that has been put in place to sort of fix that problem from a, you know, a 2FA perspective. Yeah, it's two-factor authentication. So it wasn't just you were putting in your password. Now you were getting a code on your phone, which is a different device, so it was more secure. But of course, um, the old smishing or SMS attacks and then the ability to intercept that message coming to you um, or receive that code in some way. Um, there's a whole bunch of ways they may be achieving that. But this is... Um, Kind of, this has been known about in the cybersecurity circles for some years now that like SMS isn't a good way to do two-factor authentication, um, and it seems that Metro aren't the only uh, bank that have been affected. Um, but they were forced to admit by um, the, uh, I think, the, by the regulator that you know when this reaches a certain level, you have to go public with it. Um, time to change your security measures, people. I think the the. SMS is not what it appears to be. Mm. And, and it's still mainstream. Like this stuff's still live on most um, banking applications and digital websites. Well, this this isn't the only problem that Metro had this week either. They found to have done their sums a little bit wrong at their end oh, of year yeah, review. <laughs> and uh, it turns out that the risky assets are 900 million dollars higher than they expected it to be. So I mean, um, like 
you know, when you're at school and you got the decimal place in the wrong point, it feels <laughs> it's easy. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Like, wouldn't, it, wouldn't that just your job to not get that wrong? Yeah. So uh, not the best week for Metro Bank. Is there anything you guys want to add to that? I think the popularity of Metro Bank has always really baffled me. Um, <laughs> I don't have anything particularly against Metro Bank, but it has positioned itself as a challenger on the basis of having doggy bowls uh, and being able to count your pennies through a machine. It's not exactly the most stunning alternative offering to the high street banks. Yeah. So I think that when these incidents occur, which make consumers doubt whether their money is secure um, and whether um, they are doing their accounting in a transparent way, um, I think that, that it's more damaging for a bank like Metro where you haven't got an awful lot on the other side to compensate. Mm. Do you know, I've, I've always struggled a little bit with the Metro's differentiator, but I, I've been told that things like the, um, you know, return back to security boxes, which are there one of the few organizations that do that, like you can't get one of those for love the money. Do you mm, know what I mean? Like, so yeah. like it, there's a strange um, niche that they're filling but I'm not convinced by the casino style carpets and like that narrative. It, it just doesn't really work for me. Does like the, so inside their branches does look straight out of the early nineties. Like I remember going to the movie theater when I was like uh, in the early nineties and they had these hideous carpets and hideous, it looks like so they took the people that designed those <laughs> and had them design their branches. Like it's disgusting. It, it, it is, it's, it's if Vegas did banking. If Vegas yeah. did banking, but had Tesco's logo, but yeah, it was, it's really, really odd. And but, correct. I've yeah. never been to a to a metro bank, but now I'm going to check it out because it sounds really awesome. So I just thought it was a Tesco. I really did. <laughs> just looking at the look. But and the other thing, like, so these guys came out in what at the height of the financial crisis, and their thing was we're not one of the big banks and we're customer centric. But everything else they did looks like every other bank. So all of their systems, all of the processes, it was just it was starting with a blank sheet of paper, but it was using all of the same software vendors, all of the same. It was like assuming that's what a bank is, so I'm going to do that rather than. Like a lot of people think that what's different about challenger banks and fintechs is, oh, they've got an app and it's pretty and the yes. designs, it's not that at all. It, most of the differentiation is beneath the iceberg. It's, it's not just what your technology is doing. It's how you communicate as a brand. It's how you use data on behalf of the customer, but protect their data. It's all of those sorts of culture and values things. And it's what the tech enables you to do. It's that tech becoming uh, something that allows you to have a strategic advantage from a business model standpoint. And if you're not changing the business model, I question how much you're really doing innovation. Do you know what the, the interesting thing I think with Metro is? And like you, you lot are like city folks, aren't you? I'm like the country bumpkin living out in the, uh, in the I'm, sticks. I'm from the countryside. You're from so the countryside. Yeah. <laughs> but like, like my my mum and my wife have no idea what Metro is. Mm. You know, like that's like the underground in Paris, right? You know, it's like it's not it's not a bank. Whereas like Monzo, they do know and use. So there's an interesting thing about the the you know Metro being so inside the M25s kind of narrative, and actually haven't really managed to sort of get out to mainstream in any way really they have pursued a very particular strategy where it's branch focused it's in city centers mainly in the south of england and you're right it, it has a it has a good deal of popularity but in very specific segments hmm. of the population but they are in a sense you know single-handedly proving that there is still a demand for branch-based yeah, banking absolutely. Yeah. and i 
admire them on that level for holding out and not necessarily accepting the conventional wisdom that it's all got to be online. And I know enough young people and older people who still really want to go into a bank branch oh, and actually speak to a human. Common. Yeah, mm. absolutely. Yeah, I think that's really fair. So, like, it may not be following the fintech trend, but that doesn't mean it's invalid. In fact, if anything, there is definitely, from the looks of the fact that they have customers and that they have been publishing annual reports that show profits, they're, they're doing okay. Yeah, I just wish they had better products. Yeah. Well, and better maths to make sure and those are so, <laughs> Yeah, it's that. When a bank's bad at maths. <laughs> and, and security. There's not many things we ask. <laughs> really. like one job. You did, yeah. <laughs> Two in this instance. Both of them. <laughs> right, on that note, Let's take a break. I wonder if a robot will be driving us to work in the future. They say robots could become more intelligent than humans, which can only be a good thing, right? Stephen Hawking said the rise of robots could be disastrous for mankind. Well, I'm looking forward to robots doing the hard parts of my job. If they're smarter than you, they might kick you out of your job. Artificial intelligence. Innovation or invasion. Don't settle for black or white. For the full perspective, turn to the Financial Times. Visit ft.com forward slash subscribe today. Today, customers are demanding greater value from financial services. They expect more agility, innovation and security than ever before. Most financial institutions are held back by the shackles of closed legacy systems that limit transparency, block innovation and ignore customers' demands. Finastra has a bold vision to unlock the potential of people and business. They've created a platform for open innovation in the world of financial services with FusionFabric.cloud. Their solutions span retail, transaction lending, and treasury and capital markets on-premise and in the cloud. Start your transformation journey today with Finastra. Okie dokie. Right, next up, we have a bunch of funding stories. So first up, we have over on Finextra, HSBC, Goldman Sachs, and Lord Fink. Sounds like the guy of uh, Batman or... Yeah. Uh, yeah? No? Fink? I said I'd be quick. I'm not being quick. Yeah. <laughs> Let's move on. All right, so have backed city-based fintech Bud. So uh, the guys over at Bud have closed a £20 million raise, which is pretty big. And actually, the types of people who are investing in this make it strategic to me in terms of the things that they're investing in, but not only that, the fact that they're actually going to be using these things. So we managed to go and talk to Mr. Maslavekis himself, and let's hear from what he said now. Ultimately, this round of investment is a clear indication that banks aren't just buying into the idea of complying with open banking. They're actually looking at how they can use open banking to change customer experience, help them to serve their customers from a broader service level, uh, looking at the entire market of financial products, not just their own financial products, but how can they serve their customers uh, more holistically going into the future and using open banking to make that a much more intelligent experience that recommends with relevance and intelligence. 
Um, big raise. It's good to see uh, Bud doing so well. Good for UK fintech. Um, good um, seeing some strategics getting in there as well. Um, open banking, you know, we, it's more than a year old. We didn't know if anything was going to come of it. We've seen TrueLayer do well. Plaid in the US are doing really well. Uh, it seems like the momentum is really, really building around this thing. And we, as we always know, these things are, you know, it's never going to happen. It's never going to happen. And then slowly, all of a sudden, of course, it was always going to happen. And they've got a million customers and blah, blah, blah. So this could be going that way. Um, you know, good on them and good on all the companies like them trying to do awesome stuff. What do, you, what do you guys think? I'm excited. I think it's great. I think there's a bit missing in the ecosystem right now where we have a lot of apps that have come out using open banking where you can see all of your bank accounts in one place. And the next stage of that is to be able to use that data to provide meaningful insights and the right products for the right people. And I think that's a massive step forward um, yeah. for banking in that sense. Definitely. Aggregation is not the end state on this, is it? It's the uh, almost like the first stop on moving towards something that we actually want to uh, want to see. Uh, it wasn't the only raise this, uh, this week. So we have uh, next up we have from meowing cards yep that Anna story is just going to keep running and running and running isn't it uh, to making tax digital so this is over on city am this is business banking startup Anna money raises 8.5 million from kinetic uh, the app launched back in autumn last year and ha- now has more than three and a half thousand customers uh, offering admin assistant current account banking debit card for small businesses like the sme space is just hot right it's so hot it's unbelievable and they're preparing to launch several new tools in anticipation of hm revenue and customs upcoming making tax digital um and if you've ever had to talk to anybody who runs a small business, trying to report your tax is incredibly difficult. It's incredibly complex. And this was a scheme from the UK government to try and um, you know, create APIs and really simplify that. Again, trying to do that directly from your mobile device and within your bank account, to me, is, is hugely beneficial because a small business owner just wants to sleep at night. They don't want to be thinking about the intricacies of the tax code. They, they want it to be just taken care of. And if this can be doing that for them, uh, that's huge. What do you guys think? I think there's a lot of inertia when it comes to switching your bank account, and there's just a lot of pain associated with it. So, if I think it's really smart that they're uh, building a tool to uh, help uh, with this, so I reckon it's going to solve a lot of pain. Uh, I reckon when uh, the legislation really drops, people are going to be like, oh, "I don't know what to do here," and they're going to think, "Sack it! I'm just going to switch bank account, join Anna, and uh, have them solve this for me." So, I think it's a great idea. And it seemed like a really fun company, didn't they? So they, they sort of reached, um, as we said earlier on, the, the sort of notoriety around, have you guys seen it, the when you make the transactions, the the, the cat meow? The meow. Yes, which that's right. is like speaking about bad ways of doing marketing yeah. earlier on. That's a really fun way of doing marketing. That's what a great way of getting attention. Indeed. Nobody like, yeah, it's a cat's meow. It literally is. And the, uh, the, we actually gave them an award. Um, so um, we uh, we gave them an 11FS Pulse Award uh, for the best marketing campaign on, on the back of that. And you can check out uh, all of the award winners on our blog at 11FS.com. Sounds like a wonderful read. We should go watch that. Read that. Yeah, check it out. All right, uh, moving on. So next up, another funding story. We have no sour grapes as raisin reels in the funding. These are really difficult to say, Laura. I'm not going to lie. <laughs> sour grapes. You start saying these out loud. Exactly. <laughs> Over on Finextra, raisin scores £114 million in funding. Wow. Damn. Like, again, the US just do this stuff big. It's a different scale, isn't it? So we've got pan-European savings marketplace Raisin has closed $114 million in a Series D funding round. Uh, total raise for the German fintech is topping $200 million now. 
amazing how this has come. So Raisin have 62 partner banks already on their platform connected up, uh, including KBC, uh, Banking as a Service Platform, Solaris Bank as well. That is staggering how they're growing. And it's a massive amount of investment um, considering they've got 160,000 customers. Now, that's not insignificant. It's a, it's a chunk of, of customers, but we've seen people with less investment with more customers on a, on a regular basis. But what's interesting about Raisin is you can choose savings and investment products among hundreds of offers from dozens of institutions in multiple countries with a few clicks, but they've curated the experience. And I think that's really powerful. Um, and I, I put out a blog this past week saying, um, you know, kind of wealth and savings and investments on the future of fintech. It's like the biggest thing happening in fintech. And this, this funding round to me is a is, is classic example of that. Hmm. Well, I'm, I'm just wondering what the valuation was. Uh, it's it doesn't be, say, does it? It doesn't um, say, but it's got to be a lot, hasn't it? With that amount of customer base, with that amount or, of partners. was it, right? Yeah, yeah exactly. They give away 8% of the company. Yeah, exactly, yeah. yeah when but, you don't publish what the valuation is, that's maybe you give suspect, away a lot yeah. of equity, yeah. I think it's interesting with them because uh, obviously financial products, making sure that people have the right products and they're making the right investment decisions, essentially being a marketplace, where does that fit in? Like, where do you have the suitability for the customer? Um, And a lot of what we kind of work on is making sure that we are providing the right investment solution for every single person on an individual level. If you turn savings and investment decisions into a click and buy scenario, is that kind of the right journey that a customer should be taking? Yeah. So I was, I was really not not surprised, but interested to know where they see that business going and where they fit into kind of the regulatory framework across Europe for that. It is interesting, isn't it? You know, with all of the mis-selling scandals around PPI, actually there have been a number around people not being really truly advised when they've been going into investment. So even down to just the simplest things around the uh, attitude to risk in terms of the investment approach that's been taken. So I agree with you. If actually you remove too much of that friction and it becomes a super easy thing just to press one button and do everything, then they're probably opening themselves up for lots of regulatory pressure down the line, aren't they? How about you? Like, obviously, this must be something that you face into with free trade because obviously there's one of those ones where you won't want to make it too easy, but you want to make the the certainty of actually what people are doing. Um, Valley, in in what sense? We, we we are in a different space. Well, I, I think definitely, but the the level of commitment from a trading perspective is is similar than from a wealth perspective because the impact can be quite significant. So there's a an interesting balancing act between making it too easy or making it just hard enough, if that makes sense. Right. Yeah. Uh, okay. I see, I see what you mean, David. Yeah. Um, yeah. Th- that's that's definitely a consideration. I mean, it, sh- it should not be extremely easy. You you, you want. You you kind of want people to to make considered decisions, but at the same time, don't like overly guide them uh, because that crosses into you know um, certain areas advice that we should not do exactly there's a, there's exactly. A big that, difference that, that, between that, the legal definition of advice and guidance. Exactly, and 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 uh, that that's definitely not some, something we should do. Um, you know, at, at the same time, right, right now actually our our challenge is more about making it easier. Um, we were just uh, chatting with Mel. You you sign up on Free Trade and. How do you even get started investing? That that's that's like a whole problem space that has not really been so addressed. The thing. And if you look at a lot of the traditional wealth platforms and the way people's invested, their average customers in their fifties and they already have a, a chunk of assets. Whereas um, 
companies like Free Trade, Raisin, Plum, Acorns, Robinhood, they're targeting that 30 something with far less savings. And instead of uh, the immediate conversation is about, you know, let's plan for 30 years time and like, let's think about your appetite to risk and ah, scary numbers and charts and graphs. It's like, let's just help you save every day. Oh, would you like to invest some of that? And it's that lower friction sort of things that are in your interests as a consumer, but that aren't as scary and aren't as big of a conversation. To me, that's a real breakthrough in terms of how you approach risk and how you approach consumers. Um, you, you break it up into these bite-sized chunks of a journey um, that actually are completely different. And, and I think things like free trade, similarly, it's, it's these small little things that you can do easily with a community around it that I think are powerful. Yeah, exactly. One way we think about this uh, this journey um, and you know how we want to sort of provide um, appropriate guidance is uh, there is a whole com- community around free trade, and there is not one good way to invest. Uh, and that's great. And and people have discussions about their various uh, investment approaches, so th- that's definitely helpful. But uh, yeah, uh, it's a, it's an interesting problem space. Well, I think this is where it gets really interesting with the bud investment because that's that's the opportunity to kind of close that gap and go okay we've got someone who's trying to get out of debt we've got somebody who's saving we've got somebody who's ready for investing but doesn't know how to do that and bringing that whole ecosystem together is what's going to be really exciting fintech over the next kind of five to ten years because i think that's what's missing at the moment you have this welter of apps and your average person just does not understand how they all fit together they don't know which one will be right for them at the stage that they're at in their life what I think is the next step and what the really savvy brands will do is to identify how you can find your way through that maze and link up all those different services so somebody can, you know, take small steps, like you said, mm. towards being better with their money. Yeah. And, that, and that's interesting because back to the comments that we were making about American Express earlier on, actually somebody like Bud could sit in that center point aggregating all of these things together and helping you make those decisions because you've got that complete view across all of your financial paths. And that just disintermediates all of those players from the customers that they've got in the first place. So brand, like Laura did a good job on theme on this one, like brand and marketing running all the way through this, right? Yeah, absolutely. And if you look at the... Uh, numbers that you're especially seeing in the US market with Robinhood um, with 4 million customers, Acorn 4.5 million customers, Robinhood uh, you know, raising 250 million, Acorns raising 100 plus million. This savings and investment space to me is hotter than the SME banking space. It's the hottest space because it's, it's not even 1% finished. It's 0.1% finished. There's so much to do here. And that's before we've even started talking about, you know, what are the things other than just everyday saving that we could use to motivate people? What are the things like, uh, as you see the trend to towards um, environmental, social, and governance um, type and sustainable investing. I don't know that anybody's really capitalized on that yet. Like, what if every time I bought a coffee, somebody could plant a tree? What would that mean for, you know, because there's so much to do in terms of why I invest and how I feel about money um, and that sort of uh, virtue borrowing from from saving and, and feeling like I'm doing something good for the planet whilst I'm saving. Like that, there are ways you can incent me to save that aren't just this is good for you, this is good for the rest of us as well. And also the money will grow. That to me is something that is completely missing. And we, we, we've seen some early fintech start to play with that. So maybe we'll see a lot more. Damn, dude, that got all deep and meaningful there. Can I, shall I make it fun again? You can, you can give it a go. All right, I'm going to move on. So <laughs> last story. And this is the first time that lad Bible, I think, has been referenced on this podcast. Like, uh, <laughs> definitely. It's definitely the first time we've gone to it for source material, I think. So, um, but this is my favorite story of this year, if I'm honest with you. So man quits job at bank, okay, and then turns up 
on his last day dressed like Spider-Man. It's the best story ever. <laughs> he just went about his entire normal day on his last day dressed in full Spider-Man costume. So this is a quote from the article. The pictures show that Spidey jo- Spidey's job wasn't a customer-facing role, which perhaps is for the best, as it appears that he spent most of the day on a computer in his office, presumably on the web. So he didn't want nice. to spin off from his job. <laughs> oh, gosh. <laughs> this is, like, if you guys seen the pictures of this, like, full Spider-Man outfit, just walking, like... It, when, if I ever leave 11FS, I'm definitely doing it like that. <laughs> I, I looked at the picture and I thought, how could he see his computer through the mask? Because it was a full body costume. It really was. Practicality, yeah. like productivity on that last yeah. day. <laughs> it's not great, was not it? optimal, no. I, I love the fact that it was just like, what can they do? They're just going to mm. be like, well, we can't send you home because like, you're going to be going anyway. So... I guess we'll put up with it. <laughs> with great power comes great responsibility to go in for your last day of your job. That's wrapped up a Spider-Man. <laughs> it really does. All right. On that note, this wraps up this week's show. Thank you very much for joining us, everybody. So, Mel, where can people learn more about you? Yep. So you can have a look at exoinvesting.com forward slash 11FS. And there might be a, a little surprise for the listeners on there as well. Ooh. Ooh. Now, we don't know what it is. So now we have to check it out to yeah, find out. Yeah, exactly. That's so how brand that? and marketing works. <laughs> what was that happening. URL one more time? Exoinvesting.com forward slash 11fs nailed it victor yeah uh, freetrade.io but you can follow my very exciting twitter feed at uh, v18n that's very short uh, <laughs> but v18n. hopefully not. That's, yeah well, what can it stand for yeah or, or you can email me at uh, victor at freetrade.io that's victor with a k and i i answer every email i feel like you're inspired by a16z yeah maybe yeah <laughs> somehow um, yeah, you can find us at www.hellocaster.com. Uh, I would say follow my interesting Twitter feed, but I'm actually taking a step back from social media, so there's not really much there. But um, if you do want to get a hold of me, then uh, definitely just reach out uh, via Acaster. From one person thinking about stepping back from social media to another person who's having a lot of social media? <laughs> definitely not. Um, follow me on Twitter for lots of surprises. Um, it's at Iona Young Money, and you can check out my blog at youngmoneyblog.co.uk. Very nice. Simon, where can people find out more from you? At S.Y. Taylor on Twitter or just email me, simon at 11fs.com. Wonderful. And you can find me at David Brewer on Twitter. Uh, what do you think of today's stories? I imagine there's going to be many, yeah, many I comments. I think there's going to be thoughts here. Let us know over on at Fintech Insiders on Twitter. And don't forget, if you love what you've heard, please leave us one of those reviews on iTunes. Thanks very much for listening. Goodbye. <laughs> <laughs>